chapter 1. And uh, if, you, if you're benefited by it, page 5 of your worship guide, there's a sermon outline and space to take notes, and there's reflection questions there for you, so make use of that if that helps you follow along and stay attentive to uh, this portion of Jonah 1 that we're looking at this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read Jonah 1, starting in verse 7. Uh, this, this verse that we're starting with, uh, it's, it's going to reference they, that's the mariners. Uh, just to review, Jonah, he boarded a ship headed away from Nineveh uh, recently, and he's, he's traveling out on the open sea, and uh, there's, there's this storm, so that's where we're picking up. And the mariners, in verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Uh, against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord and made vows. You may be seated, and I invite you to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we ask simply uh, and, and sincerely, that you would prevail on us right now. Of course, of, of course we have a will. We, we make choices. But we're asking you to invade us and, and give us what you describe in Scripture as this heart of flesh, a, a receptivity to what you're teaching us, because if left to ourselves, we would not receive this. We would not be, we would not be benefited by your word. We might, we might have some superficial knowledge of your word, but we, we want to be impacted by it. And we want our lives to bear the fruit that Bailey just mentioned in his prayer to you, that we would be people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we're asking for you to author and perfect that in us through the power of your word right now. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the story of Jonah is all about mercy. It's not about a guy who gets mercy. It's about God's prevailing mercy. In fact, you could say it's about God's pandemic mercy. God wants his mercy to prevail on everyone, all different tribes, all different people groups, all different cultures and nationalities. He wants his mercy to spread and go viral all over the world. And ironically, and actually pretty dramatically, the biggest opponent of mercy 
is the main character of the book, Jonah. God's servant, the prophet Jonah. And he's doing everything he can to prevent God's mercy from going viral, from prevailing on all these various different people. But here's the deal. Everyone Jonah comes in contact, contact with seems to get infected by God's mercy. Jonah is like the old man in the, uh, the movie Up, you know, Carl Fredrickson. Uh, the old man in the movie Up, he does not like kids he doesn't like dogs. He doesn't like rare South American birds. But no matter what he does, no matter how hard he tries, uh, you know, boys like Russell and Doug's like, uh, dogs like Doug and, and Kevin, the rare South American bird, they follow him around. He just can't seem to shake them. They want to be with him. And it's kind of like that with Jonah and God's mercy. He doesn't want to be a conduit of God's mercy. He wants to obstruct God's mercy. And yet God is insistent on using Jonah to prevail upon all different types of people with his mercy. We see in this scene that Jonah is trying to have nothing to do with people. We, we saw last week in verse 5, Jonah boards this ship heading for Tarshish and he goes down into the bowels of the ship and he locks himself in his room and he just tries to go to sleep. Right? He's, he's being an introvert. He doesn't want anything to do with anyone lest God's mercy you know, infect more people. But God wants to use Jonah to prevail on these mariners with his mercy. And when God infects people with his mercy, God first ensures that those people will be receptive to his mercy. And so God first has to make us feel this fact that we are small. Now, this should be a pretty obvious fact to all of us. I mean, none of us chose to be born. You know, our, our origin story from the get-go tells us you're not big, you're, you're small. And when you first existed, you were very helpless. You were vulnerable. You were a little baby. And your parents or some caretaker had to do everything for you. You're small. And if you've ever looked up at the night sky or, or been in the middle of a storm, you know you're small. And yet God has to still relentlessly remind us that you are, in fact, not God. You're not big. You're not sovereign. But you're small. And it's God's mercy that forces us to feel this fact that we are small. Now, it's going to take something pretty big, something pretty severe to get the mariners to really come to grips with the fact that they're small because what you have to realize is that the ocean, of all places, is where the mariners work. That's their domain. That's where they feel comfortable and at home. They're accustomed to the vastness of the sea and the, the waves and the turbulent weather. That's where they feel you know, relatively in control. And, and all of us have a domain. All of us have a, a place where we feel relatively safe and it's familiar and we're, we're, we're comfortable. It's our happy place. You know, so for some of you, it's checking email. You, you just feel good when you check email and respond to email. You do. You feel efficient. You feel productive. You know what to expect. expect. Uh, you, you have time to collect your thoughts and then type out a response and proofread it and then send it. You feel like this is where I'm happy. This is where I feel efficient. For some of you, it's... Instagram or just holding your phone. You're like Ryan Howard on The Office. You just have to have your phone. It just gives you that feeling of autonomy, you know, and sovereignty. I just press these, these little icons on my phone screen and, it, and I can get stuff to happen. I feel in control. I feel powerful when I hold my phone and I, I scroll through whatever I'm looking at on the screen. For some of you, it's shopping. You know, you get this dopamine hit just logging onto Amazon because you're going to you're gonna, do your recon and you're going to find that next product and it's going to make you feel happy for some you know, fleeting little period of time. 
That's your, that's your area where, where you're really feeling content. You feel familiar in that context. For some of you, it's working around the house, yard work or home renovations. This is your domain. This is where you feel in control. For some of you, it's counseling, either going to a counselor and you know, hashing out your problems or being the counselor, you know, being someone who has the reputation of you're a good listener and you pride yourself on asking thoughtful questions. This is your wheelhouse. For some of you, it's a particular cause or, or a movement. You know, you're, you're affiliated with a particular political party or, or a particular movement that's happening in our cultural moment. And that's what you're really excited about. And that's where you feel most passionate. Or for some of you, it's your identity. This, this myth that you could say who you are. You could decide for yourself what your primary identity is. And you just love to focus in on who am I? Who do I say that I am? Now, let me point out something really, really obvious, but it's something that we very frequently forget. Whatever your domain, wherever you would, would say, this is my happy place, God owns that domain. You rightfully are to steward, you know, passion and to be a participant in that domain. But God is the master. God is the author. He's the owner of that domain, right? So if it's your identity, you, you should think about, like, who am I? You should wrestle with that. But ultimately, you look to God to tell you, who am I? Why am I here? Whatever cause or movement you choose to be a part of, that's fine. You can be passionate and zealous for certain things in life, but ultimately you're looking at God and you're saying, I want to take my marching orders from you because if I care deeply about something, I should go to the author of why I care and whatever I care about and ask you, God, what should I be doing on a day-to-day -day basis in relationship or in, in regards to this particular cause? Whatever it is, you need to look to God. One of the best things that could ever happen to you is that you would encounter the maker and master of your domain. And of course, if you do that, you're going to feel small because God is always categorically bigger than you and you're going to feel tiny in his presence. And this is a good thing. It's not a belittling thing. We, in our sin, hear the, the expression feeling our smallness and we think it, it's a devaluing thing. It's a belittling thing. And that's not true. It's a life-giving, liberating thing. So think about the first two chapters of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall. Adam and Eve, what was their domain? Where, where did they work? In Eden. And they were invested. They, they had roles. They had jobs. They had all, all kinds of passion and, and zeal to work in this place, the Garden of Eden. But they didn't own it. And they were keenly aware of the fact that they weren't the sovereign authors and owners or masters of Eden. And that's what actually allowed them to be free. The, the way God describes paradise in scripture is Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. Which is to say they were small. And unlike you and me, they weren't bothered by the fact that they were small. They didn't wallow in this feeling of insecurity and inadequacy. They were okay with the fact that they didn't have it all figured out and all under control. They were very content to look to God as the author and owner and master of their domain. And in this scene, the mariners are meeting the maker of their domain. That is primary in this story. It's not just that there's this big, scary storm. It's that God is in the storm. And the mariners are keenly aware of this. They're not just scared of a storm. They're scared because they know the owner 
of the ocean, the master of the sea, is right there in the midst of this storm. And you can see that they, they know something supernatural is going on when you read verse 7. They cast lots to discern why this storm is happening. And in verse 8, you see the, the lot has fallen to Jonah, and so they hit him with this, these, this barrage of questions. They say, who are you? What's your job? What's your occupation? Where are you from? Who are your people? And this is a telltale sign of feeling small. This is how we get... This is how we behave when we feel small. We have all of these sort of frantic questions that well up inside of us when we feel small. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the month of June, I flew on an airplane four times. Um, and all four times, the flight was delayed by three hours or more. Okay. Now, whenever a flight is delayed, everybody at the gate, once that announcement that the delay is, is happening... Everybody starts lining up at the, at the gate for, for, you know, checking in. And they have all these questions. Why is there a delay? What, give me details about the delay. How long is this going to happen? What's being done to fix it? Should I rebook myself on another flight? And questions are good. Questions are fine to a degree. But why do we get like this? Do, do we ask all these questions because we're in a position to make any decisions? Like once we have all this information, we will then be in control and we will be able to make the flight leave sooner? No, we, we frantically ask questions to keep this illusion of control propped up. This, this is how we feel when, when we're small. We, we want to ask all these things because we don't like feeling this way. We're desperately trying to, to prop up this illusion of control. And that's part of what's going on with these mariners. They're feeling small. They're being brought to the end of themselves and they don't like it. And so in verse 9, uh, Jonah answers their questions. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and what you have to know about me is that I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when they get this information, you, you see how they respond in verse 10. The men, upon hearing this, they become exceedingly afraid. And they say to Jonah, what have you done? You're trying to flee the presence of God? Don't you realize that's a bad idea? That's impossible. What are, what are you doing? This is ridiculous that you're trying to flee the presence of God. And they're exceedingly afraid because, again, God is in this storm. And they are feeling very helpless, very exposed and vulnerable and desperate. Because God is bringing them to the end of themselves. And when God brings us to the end of ourselves, it's not just us feeling small, but it's us sort of, it's God draining us or exhausting us uh, in terms of us using our strategies to feel in control. So these men ask, what should we do? And in verse 12, Jonah says, okay, the only thing you can do in response to this storm, to quiet and calm this storm down, is you have to sacrifice me. You have to throw me into the raging, tempestuous storm. And what do the mariners do with this revelation? When they are told that the only way for them to be saved is to sacrifice the prophet, to kill him, to throw him into the ocean, what do they do? Well, they do the same thing that people did when they first heard what Jesus had to say. They said, this is too severe. This, this does not make sense to us. This sounds way too extreme. This sounds way, way too harsh. This was how people responded to Jesus because Jesus' most primary message was, I have come to die. 
I have come to lay down my life for you. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be taunted and mocked. I'm going to be crucified. And ultimately, I'm going to receive the full, infinite wrath of God for you. That's what has to happen. And, G- and Jesus, he had a lot of people following around, like for, for weeks and months, perhaps years, people would follow him around and they would be really big fans of Jesus because he provided free health care and he provided free lunch and they would follow him around so long as he provided the health care and the lunch. Uh, but then, like in John chapter 6, he, he would open his mouth and he would talk about how he had to die and about how he was going to lay down his life and you would have to take his broken body and eat it. And take your shed blood and drink it. You'd have to really deeply embrace it, personally embrace it for yourself as your only means by which to be saved. And when people heard Jesus say stuff like that, they just tried to to not think about it or they just walked away. Because it seemed way, way too severe, way too harsh. And that's what the mariners do with this sacrifice the prophet option. Jonah tells them really concisely, really definitively what they have to do, and they just ignore it. They say, we don't want to do that. So they table the sacrifice Jonah option, and what do they do instead? Well, they keep trying their strategies. They keep trying to do it on their terms. So in verse 5, we saw the the mariners praying to their gods and throwing all the cargo into the sea, these strategies to navigate the storm, and those didn't work. And now in verse 13, what do you see them doing? They get on the oars and they just start rowing harder. They think, we we don't have to do this extreme option if we could just get on the oars and row harder than we've ever rowed. Maybe our strategies, maybe our efforts and our exertion will save us from the storm. And we're the same way. We are the same way. Even if you've been a Christian for a really long time and you profess faith in Jesus, here's the fact. You are scared to trust God. You know this is true. You know that there are all kinds of things that God is calling you to be about, to live by faith, trust him, and you know that you're scared to do it. And instead of trusting God, you keep trying your own strategies. So what are our strategies? There's no way we can go through all of the various kinds of strategies we employ in this life. That would take too long. But let's just cover three categories, okay? What's our strategy for contentment? What's your strategy for being calm and and composed and content? So I told you in the month of June, I traveled four times. And in the face of these uh, delays, the first few times I traveled, I was not at all content. My my son was with me. Henry was with me for all four experiences, and he could testify. Dad was really stressed out, and he was bothered, and he was frustrated. Uh, my, My mannerisms, my speech, everything about the way I was responding to the delay was not content. But by the fourth flight, my wife actually made this observation. She was like, wow, you were, you were, you handled that much better. You, you were much more calm. And you might ask, okay, so what was your strategy? Pessimism. (laughs) Pessimism. I went into the fourth flying experience thinking American Airlines is horrible. They will do a bad job. Uh, In fact, this is borderline dehumanizing and, and systematically oppressive. And so anything better than that, I guess, I don't don't expect much. Now, is that a good strategy? You might think so. It's certainly utilitarian. It's helpful to some extent if you're thinking about it in a utilitarian way. But the Holy Spirit would look at that and he'd say, okay, so your contentment is supposed to be rooted in Christ, 
not in your own strategy of pessimism. And it may feel effective, utilitarianly effective, but it's not, it's not of the spirit. It's, it's of your flesh. It's not a good strategy. And it's not going to work for the long haul. It's not sustainable. Furthermore, when you're in the airport terminal and, and you're, you're sitting there with nothing else to do, it's, it's not an effective or legitimate strategy to be pessimistic, not only because you need a contentment that is rooted in Christ, but if your contentment is rooted in Christ, do you know what else you'll do with this three-hour delay? You'll be curious about why is the sovereign Lord doing this? Because, yeah, I mean, American Airlines maybe could have done something to prevent this, but ultimately I need to situate myself in the context of God is sovereign, and so maybe there's something for me to see or learn or do in this unexpected three-hour delay. There's so much more freedom. There's so much more joy in contentedness rooted in Christ rather than in your own pessimism. What about our security? What's our strategy for feeling safe? Policyism. We policy everything to death. We, we think, okay, I've been hurt. I tried to have that conversation with that person. I tried joining a church and I got hurt. I got wounded. So now I have a policy. I won't let myself have that kind of conversation anymore. I won't let myself help out in that type of a context anymore because it just comes back to bite you. I won't let myself get too close to anybody because people get nasty and, and they can hurt you. So I have a policy. Self-protectionism. That's our policy. Now, is that good? No. Your security should be rooted in Christ. You're a sheep. And there is this savior who describes himself as a good shepherd and he knows you feel frazzled and small and vulnerable, sheep-like. And he says, you should not trust in your self-protection techniques to feel secure. You should trust me. Don't listen to your own voice. Listen to my voice. And you say, Jesus, but you'll lead me through valleys that, that are even labeled shadow of death. I'm not feeling real safe. He says, yeah, you're going to have to trust me because I'm going to take you through some scary stuff. I'm going to insist that you join a, a local and particular church and you will get hurt because people are sinners. You're, you're going to have to trust me. Your security does not depend on you. It depends on Christ. Third example, what about our acceptance? Feeling validated. We all want this. We all want to feel affirmed and validated and accepted. Our strategy, the way I'll, I'll describe this to you is I'll just quote the first line of the Avett Brothers song, The Weight of Lies. This is, our, this is our strategy for acceptance or popularity. The Avett Brothers very poetically describe it like this. They say, okay, here's the strategy. You disappear from your hometown and you go and find the people that you quote unquote know. And you show them all of your good parts, but then you leave town before your bad parts start to show. It's It's lies. You're afraid of people really knowing you because if they really knew you, they really knew that you wrestled with that thing, that you really had these types of thoughts, that you were selfish in all of these little sub, you know, subterranean kind of ways, they, they would reject you. They would, they would hold you at arm's length. They wouldn't want anything to do with you. And God says, you need to trust me. Ultimately, your acceptance, your craving for uh, affirmation and validation, it's found primarily in your relationship with Jesus, who looks at you and sees you completely, thoroughly the way you are. 
just like that woman in John 4. He knew that she had five husbands, five failed marriages, and the, and the guy she was living with currently was not her husband. And she thought, if anybody saw me for who I really am, they would want nothing to do with me. And then God came, and he saw her, and he called her out, and he said, and here's the deal, I still love you. I accept you. I want to offer you the waters of living, the, the, the water that's living, living water. I want to lavish my love on you. It was transformative. God says, this, this attempting to live life in accordance with your strategies, it's not going to work. And God will let us exhaust ourselves running our strategies. You realize this? God will let you get on the oars and row as hard as you can so that you will come to the end of yourself. So that you, you will realize that you can't do it in your own strength. Self-sufficiency is a myth. So when we've completely exhausted ourselves... We've come to the end of ourselves. What then? What does God want from us? What does he want us to do? He wants us to embrace the sign of his prevailing mercy. Personally and primarily, God wants us to, to come to this knowledge of saving grace in Christ alone. This, this story, the gospel, where God says, it's not about what you do. It's about what I've come to do for you. And your identity and your worth, it's predicated on Christ's accomplishments, not on yours. And you need to personally embrace that. Embrace this shocking sign of God's mercy. And we see the mariners do that. They come to the end of themselves. They've been rowing. They can't row anymore. And in verse 14, the mariners, they call out to the Lord and they say, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And what pleases God? What pleases God? The Bible says mercy. Showing you mercy is what God desires to do. It's what he is pleased to do. And this is shocking. It's shocking for two reasons. Number one, it's shocking because God wants to be merciful to you. See, you and I by default, tend to think that what God primarily desires to do is he wants to police us. He wants to monitor us and, and just kind of hover over us with this chronic state of like preemptive guilt. Just you're always sort of waiting for God to get you. Like, like the police, you know, they have those speed traps when you drive on the highway and they're going to bust you. They're going to tell you you did it wrong. That's what you think God's most passionate about. That's what he's desiring to do. You think God wants to punish you. And when you read the Gospels, God makes it very clear that his desire is to show you mercy. This is what it says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 13. It says, I desire to show you mercy. And that is shocking. That blows up this category that God just wants to get us and police us and punish us. It's shocking, furthermore, because God insists on using Jonah of all people, as a signpost of his promised mercy. Jonah, as, as we are already aware, is a disobedient, reluctant, at best, prophet. He's, he's not a good example of what a prophet should, should be like. And yet God is using Jonah as the sign of his mercy. And so in verse 15 and 16, the mariners pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea and the sea instantly ceases from its raging. 
And what's the impact on these mariners? The mariners fear the Lord exceedingly. They offer sacrifices to the Lord and they make vows to the Lord. And that's what God is inviting y'all to do when you come to this table in a minute. When you come to the Lord's Supper, you're making a vow. You're coming to the altar. It's a marital meal. And God's saying, it's not enough for you to know about my salvation. You need to take it and you need to embrace it personally. You need to put it in yourself. You need to take my body, my flesh, and you need to eat it. And my blood, you need to take that and you need to drink it. It's making a vow to God to deeply invest and to, to personally embrace the fact that God wants to show. That's what these mariners are doing. They're receiving the prevailing mercy of God. They've tried their strategies. They've, they've wrestled against this feeling of being small, and they're now at a place where they're going to receive it. They're going to accept the fact that God wants to show them mercy. And God's primary command when you come to this meal, you have to realize, is not you need to do something. Very clearly, God is saying, I am going to do something. I have done what needs to be done. When Jesus was asked, what do we need to do to be saved? He was asked this question in John chapter 6. What works do we need to be doing to know that we, we merit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, the work that you need to be doing is you need to believe in the one who came to do the work for you. That's why you come to this meal. Because you realize that no amount of your strategizing or no amount of your exertion or effort can get you back into a right relationship with God. Only God himself taking on flesh and living perfectly for you to, to impute that perfection to you and to lay down his life to atone for all of your evil. Only this can get you into heaven. And this has always been the primary command. Way before Jesus took on, on flesh and dwelt amongst us, uh, this has always been the command. Thousands of years before the incarnation of God, uh, you go back to the days of Moses, the command was to fixate on not what you can do, but on what God's going to do for you. So you go back to the example of Moses. It says in the book of Hebrews that when Moses made all of those decisions to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures uh, that were available to him in Egypt, you know how he did all that? It says he was considering the reproach of Christ. That's, that's what fueled his life. The identity of Moses, the sense of worth that he experienced, the liberty to live by faith, he was able to do that because he was fixated, not just on a generic savior, but on a savior who would be reproached. A savior who would give his life, who would die, who would be a sacrifice for sinners. That's how he lived, by faith. Our hope and our confidence has never depended on human will or exertion but it has always depended on God who has mercy. And Jonah is such a complete picture and, and such a thorough sign of this fact. Jonah, he is such a thorough sign because, number one, he personifies our need for mercy. Again, we've already seen this, and we're going to see this more and more as we go throughout the story of Jonah. Jonah is not a good moral example. Jonah is the most wretched, in-need-of-mercy uh, uh, character in the story. The person who needs mercy more than anybody else in the story of Jonah is who? Jonah. The person most obstinate, most stubborn, most wretched, most in need of mercy 
is Jonah. And he personifies our need for mercy. And at the same time, Jonah is a picture of the exclusive kind of mercy that we need. Jonah, of all people, points us to the perfect prophet who won't be reluctant, who won't try to prevent God's mercy, but the prophet who will carry out God's desire to show mercy as the joy set before him. Jonah points us to a prophet who will literally fall asleep in a boat and be awoken to people panicked by a storm, pleading with him to save them. Jonah points us to a prophet who will insist that the only way to calm the storm is for him to die. The only way for us to be saved is for God to do what seems so harsh, so severe. Kill his only begotten son so that we can enjoy the mercy that God wants to show us. And just as the mariners were left with this sign, the sign of Jonah, which we're going to talk all about next week, you have been left with a sign of God's prevailing mercy. And it's this. This is the sign that you most regularly get to partake of as a disciple of Christ. To remember the sacrifice that has been made for you. The sacrifice of your exclusive salvation, which is found in Christ alone. And the invitation is that you would come to this meal and embrace what Jesus did for you. As it is described in Romans 9, that you would come to this meal and you would deeply and personally embrace the fact that it is not by human will or exertion that you are saved, but it is by the mercy of God. As we read in our call to worship, God lays in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in this rock of offense, this Savior who had his body break and his blood shed, they will not be put to shame. And so before you come to this meal, you really have to ask yourself a, a heart-level question. You have to examine yourself, and you have to honestly evaluate, do I want to receive God's mercy? Because God himself tells you it's offensive. God himself describes these scenarios where, where people want to row away from this severe, harsh meal, this sign where God says the only way you can be saved the only way you can have a good life full of liberty and joy and happiness is if you take Jesus at his word and you embrace what he came to do for you. So if that's not where you are this morning, I need to warn you that if you, if you came in just some kind of automated, thoughtless way, you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. That's what the scriptures say. But if you come to this meal and you're actually hungry for the mercy of God, you agree with God in his desire to show you mercy, then this meal is most certainly and sincerely for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for showing us what you are most emphatic about and, and doing that from all scripture. Moses and the prophets, even this prophet, Jonah, who was the worst of all the prophets, who most flagrantly opposed you and most boldly challenged your desire to show sinners mercy, and nevertheless, through Jonah, you show us the sign of your prevailing mercy. We pray that we would be uh, provoked by this story. It's a provocative story. And you are, you are doing everything in your grace to show us that you really do want to show us mercy. You want to envelop us in your amazing grace, which is found in Christ alone. So we ask, God, that you would enable us and compel us uh, to partake of your mercy and grace today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
The Lord Jesus